want to use this passage in some ways to prepare uh, for communion this morning. And uh, you'll remember when Jesus institutes the uh, when he institutes communion at the Lord's uh, Supper, he uh, takes the bread and he blesses it. And then he takes the cup and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And I usually always read from First Corinthians eleven twenty five, which says in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, Jesus is speaking to people that know their Bibles and they understand what the old covenant is and they understand what the new covenant is, what was promised in in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The old covenant is the covenant made in Exodus, made in Mount Sinai. All of these things, as we've been preaching through it, we're not there yet. We're just at the uh, ten plagues. But as we've been reading through it, you've seen the instructions as Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he's told all of these instructions, build this, build that. This is what the temple tabernacle should look like. Uh, Today it was the priests. This is how they should be cleansed. All of those things are given as institutions of this first covenant. The main point this morning is that Christ's death is the death of the new covenant that forgives sins once for all time. And you think about how in the Old Testament they often had to go and offer sacrifices. Once a year there would be the Day of Atonement where they would offer the blood of a, of a goat or a ram or, or a, yeah, a goat into the, the, uh, on the altar and they would take it in the blood into the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle and they would sprinkle that over the mercy seat. They would have a second goat Uh, the scapegoat where they would lay their hands on that and pray over it. And then they would release it into the wild, a wild, a symbolism of of the sin being separated from them. Uh, And so they did this regularly and habitually. And and the reason they repeated it is because they were looking forward to the final forgiveness of sins. They were looking forward to what God would do one day in the future through Jesus, through the Messiah, through the promised one. And as you go through Scripture, more and more detail is revealed about what Jesus will do and who he will be and the line he will come from and where he will be born and all of those things. But from the very beginning, when they set these things up at Mount Sinai, there is the anticipation God is going to do more than what he's just doing now. For us, So you have the first covenant or the old covenant at Mount Sinai. Jesus's death is the death of the new covenant that forgives sins once for all times. So we see that Christ first is a mediator of the new covenant. I think we should pause here and, and kind of ask the question, what is a covenant? That's probably not... Um, a word that we use in our, in our, our regular uh, day-to-day interaction. Um, a covenant is an oath. Uh, it's, a, it's a bond. It's a, a solemn swearing of, of commitment, uh, usually between two people or, or two individuals or two groups. Often uh, there's laying down in the covenant of, 
of terms and conditions in the covenant. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, when a king, a powerful king, would co- conquer uh, a city and the weaker king would, would uh, surrender to the powerful king, the king would often make a treaty, a, a covenant treaty with them. And, and the kind of technical term is uh, suzerain vassal treaties. It just means really powerful king and his vassal sub-weak little king who pledges a loy- uh, 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 loyalty uh, to the, the high big kahuna king. And so it's suzerain vassal treaty. It's just this treaty of these two kings. And, and basically the vassal says, you know, if I break this treaty, if I break this covenant, uh, may I be put to death. That's like the terms of the covenant. Uh, you see covenants in Scripture, but also today in marriage, right? When, when you walk down the aisle and you get married to your spouse, you're not just making a promise. Uh, you're not just saying, yeah, okay, well, we'll give this a shot, see if it works, you know, whatever. Uh, you are binding yourself to them. You're, you're making an oath. And it's one of the few things left in our culture that, that we, we can still say. That's a covenant. And you go, oh, yeah, okay, I, I get what that is. But you see these all over the place in Scripture. God makes covenants with his people. People, of course, make covenants in marriage. David and Jonathan make a covenant together where David promises Jonathan that when he becomes king, he will not destroy the descendants of of Jonathan. So David and Jonathan aren't just um, best friends. Uh, They're certainly not rivals, even though Jonathan's dad, Saul, is in rivalry with David. They make they're like beyond best friends, so much so that they they connect themselves in a covenant. I will take care of your children. I will, I will never harm them and hurt them. It's, it's the making of an oath. Ruth, in the book of Ruth, not only does she marry Naomi's sons, uh, but when they die and she's uh, technically set free from the covenant of marriage, she shows covenant faithfulness to Naomi. She travels with Naomi back to the land. She says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She she makes a covenant of I won't leave you and abandon you, Naomi. I will treat you as if you are my mother. It's it's somewhat like adoption, but it's it's more than that, because Naomi is the one saying, I'm going to do this. Covenants are these bonds, these commitments, these oaths of loyalty. And, and often uh, it's the lesser person, like, like I said, with the two kings that make the oath, it's the lesser person that makes the oath. But even in those things, the, the more powerful king, he makes the oath that I will protect you. I've just destroyed all your armies. You've just submitted to me. Now, my armies, you will be a part of us and I will protect you. Well, God makes covenants with his people. God makes these unbreakable promises where he binds himself by an oath to his people. Uh, We talked about this a little earlier on as we were going through Exodus. This idea when God says, I will be your people and you will be my children uh, or I will be your God and you will be my people, excuse me, this is a covenant. 
This is like a marriage vow that, that, that God and his people are, are united, that God will, will take care of them because of the covenant. I won't detail to you all the covenants in Scripture, but God makes a covenant with Noah. That's why we have rainbows to this day. God makes a, a covenant uh, to Abraham that in, all, in, in Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's one of the early covenants that hints at Christ's coming. There's the covenant made at Mount Sinai, which we're going to get to in Exodus. There's the Davidic covenant, the promise that the Messiah would come to David and his line. And then in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when God's people have broken the old covenant and all of the punishments that were given in Exodus and Deuteronomy as part of the old covenant, if you do this, you're going to be removed from the land, sent into exile. There are consequences to that covenant. God says, but I'm going to make a new covenant. And this new covenant will erase the consequences. And it will bring the final forgiveness of sins. And the son of David will come as part of this new covenant. And so Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So Christ mediates the new covenant, which is going to be, as we'll see, superior to the old covenant. So if you go back to Hebrews chapter eight, verse six, if you just want to flip back, it says in verse six, but as it is, Christ obtained a ministry that is more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, God gave the old covenant to the children of Israel, and the problem was the children of Israel sinned. They broke the covenant. They transgressed the law. If you and I, if we disobey any of the Ten Commandments, we are breaking God's law. And you think about how when Jesus comes at the Sermon of the Mount, and, and you might be sitting here today and say, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good on the Ten Commandments. I've never committed murder. I've never stolen. I've never committed adultery. What does Jesus say? Well, if you look at a woman and have lust for her, it's like you've broke the commandment. Do not commit adultery. If you have hate in your heart, it's like you've broken the commandment. Do not murder. The commandments weren't just for the external They were for the internal. And the problem is telling someone a command doesn't change their heart. This is part of the thing that goes on in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is always saying, you guys are stubborn. You're going to break these things. God's given you these simple commands. And look at where your heart is. And the rest of Israel's history is how she wanders from God And God draws her back. And she wanders from God. And God draws her back. She breaks God's covenant. And God is faithful to his promises. She spurns God like a a woman cheating on her husband. And God draws her back. And God sends her ultimately into Babylon in exile. But before he does that, through through the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah, he says, I'll bring you out of this. And I will do it by making a new covenant 
which will bring the full forgiveness of sins. And I will put inside you a new heart and I will write my law upon your heart. It's a new covenant. And this is why it's better. If the old covenant only looked forward to the coming of Jesus and all of these things were, as Hebrews says, they were like shadows. They were like types. Just like when you see someone's shadow, you know there's a real person there. Even if you don't see the person, maybe you're around a corner and their shadow is is creeping out and you say, oh, okay, here's the shadow. There must be somebody making that shadow. Well, the old covenant was the shadow to say there's someone coming that's going to do all of the things that this old covenant looked forward to. And instead of doing them day after day or year after year, he's going to do them in one time. His death, his resurrection and his ascension will do all of it all at once. And so Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant of a more superior covenant. It's better. It's enacted on better promises. And in this covenant, we get an inheritance. So again, you think about Exodus right there. They're coming out of Egypt. They cross over the Red Sea. They get the covenant. What is the inheritance that they're going to? Remember how they send the 12 spies? 12 men went to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad and 2 were good. What did they see when they spied on Canaan? What what was the inheritance? Canaan. The promised land. It was an earthly symbol of things that we're going to get that are even better when we're in heaven and we're in the new heavens and the new earth. It was a land uh, flowing with milk and honey. And all they had to do was trust that God would defeat the giants in the land. And they couldn't even do that. And so they ended up wandering for 40 years. In the new covenant, we are granted a promised inheritance. Look at verse 15 of chapter 9. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we have been redeemed from breaking the law's commands in the first covenant in order that the new covenant or the second covenant or the better covenant can be put into effect. What does this mean? You and I are sinners and we have broken God's law. And what does the Lord Jesus Christ do in his death? He pays for our transgressions. Transgressions are when you break the rules. And not just break the rules in like a, oh, my, my parents said I couldn't have a cookie and I snuck one. But it's, it's when you transgress against a holy God. You cross the line. You, you know what the, it says and it says don't do this. And you just jump right over and you say, I am going to sin. And that is where our hearts are without the Lord Jesus Christ. We are dead in our sins and we walk in the transgressions of these things. And and the worst part of it is without Jesus Christ, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we generally enjoy these things. We might not like some of the consequences that come, but generally we find a sort of perverse pleasure out of sinning. It makes us happy. 
And as the song says, if it makes you happy, who cares? Go and do it. But we transgress. Since a death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The covenant had conditions. Do this and you'll live and it will go well for you in the land. Don't do this and you will die. If you break even just one of the commands... Galatians 3, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things in the book of the law and do them. James 2.10, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so what does Christ do? He hangs on the cross on a tree. Because the law says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He had done no sin that made him a lawbreaker. And he goes up there and he suffers the curse, the penalty of being a lawbreaker. So that the transgressions that you and I committed in breaking God's good commands. We're not talking about the ceremonial ones. We're talking about the moral ones. Have no other gods before me. Honor your father and mother. Do not covet. All of those things. We broke them. And Christ goes to the cross and hangs there so that the transgressions that I have done can be poured out. The punishments that I deserve are given to Him so that He can put into place a better covenant. We broke the first covenant. Like, like sometimes we think in our Christian lives and even in our non-Christians lives, if God would just give me a second chance, I'd, I'd get it right next time. No. If God were just to give you a second chance, like, like kind of wipe the slate clean and, and okay, start over, try again. You and I are going to sin. We need our transgressions to be paid for. We need a new covenant where our hearts are changed. Where instead of just seeing the law and hearing it and saying, okay, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, it actually gets written on our hearts. So we're saying in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit, I want to walk with God. I want to keep His commandments. I want to be in fellowship. With him. All of these are new covenant uh, promises. Jesus' ministry to God's people, to us, is greater than, than the ministry of Moses. Moses mediates this old covenant. Christ mediates this new covenant. The, the very climactic thing that all of the scriptures look forward to. There's even a hint in Deuteronomy 30. Moses knows that they're not going to keep the old covenant. And there's this hint. Now, he doesn't use the word new covenant, but he hints at it because God is inspiring those words. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that Moses is a servant in the house of God and Jesus Christ is the master over the house. That's why he's a better mediator. He's putting into place a better covenant. Second, this morning, Christ's death fulfills the old covenant curses and puts into, the, uh, puts into effect the new covenant. So actually what you'll see here in verses 16 and 17 is, is Hebrews actually makes a play on words comparing 
a covenant to a will. So, again, the end of verse 15, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where a will, and actually in the Hebrew, the, the, or excuse me, in the Greek, the, the word is actually covenant. But, but in English, covenant and will can be used as two different words, whereas in the Greek, you can kind of make that play on the word. So our English says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made, uh, as the one who made it is alive. So again, he's making the point here that someone has to die to put into effect this new covenant. The point is that Christ, to put into effect, to put it into place, to start it off, if you will, to to solemnize it and and make it in uh, to make that oath, if you will, and make it effective. He's put to death. He dies under the conditions of the old covenant, the punishments that it spelled out so that he can bring the blessings that the new covenant promises. So Christ's death not only redeems us from what we've done, but saves us to where we are going. It not only redeems us from what we've done, but it saves us to where we are going. Sometimes we do treat the death of Christ like a mulligan. Well, he wiped my slate clean. Now I'll just try better. There are some forms that claim to be Christian that will talk about Jesus' death in terms of paying for our sins. But now they will say in the Christian life, it's up to you to be infused with God's grace, to appropriate God's grace. And they will say, you can never be sure in this life that you're going to heaven. Because you can never be sure that you have enough of God's grace in you so that when you die, you'll go to heaven. Typically, you go to an intermediate kind of purgatory where, where it's burned off and then you get there. But, but see, the grace of God doesn't just save you from your sins. It saves you to heaven. It brings you to where you need to be. It is effective. And when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ covers all of your sins, past, present, and future. Now, that doesn't mean we just casually go around living however we want. I'm just going to live up in sin because God will forgive it and whatever. No, we're to walk in the newness that we have in Christ. But it does mean when we do stumble, we have an advocate in heaven who continues to minister for us. We have that priest who has sacrificed himself, who has ascended into the the heavenly tabernacle, not like the earthly ones where Aaron and his sons went into, but but he presented his blood, if you will, before the throne of God, and then he sat down because his ministry of paying for sins was done. And so when we pray, he's our mediator. 
You pray and your prayers go right to the throne of grace. And Christ is merciful and gives mercy and grace in your time of need. This is the argument in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Christ is all that we need. And so now, even as a believer, I have all of the spiritual blessings that I need in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has put this into effect. And, and the analogy is, if I make a will, if I say, when, if I say this is my will, my children uh, will get all of my riches, uh, all of my comic books, that's maybe the closest, I don't, they're not even that expensive either. But if you joke, but some of the kids asked, who's going to get which comic books at one point? So, you have all these things, and you put them down in your will, and, and what does it take for your will to go into effect. Can your kids just show up at your house one day and say like, hey, dad, uh, uh, I'm ready for my inheritance now. Well, I mean, the prodigal son did that and that didn't work out so well for him. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, there's nothing wrong to avoid tax laws and, and that sort of stuff. We give some of the inheritance early and we're not talking about that. But the point is, when do the lawyers sit down and open up the will? When you die. And this is kind of the point. And again, it's this play on word between covenant and will. But the point is, how did this covenant go into effect? Christ had to die. This was the plan. This was the promise. These, these promises were given specifically. The Hebrews quotes a lot from the book of Jeremiah. Because there's new covenant promises. I'm going to do this, God says. And when does it go into effect? When the Son of God dies for us. It's interesting. Hebrews will say every covenant needs blood to be inaugurated. This is uh, now, now um, uh, David and Jonathan, I don't think they inaugurated theirs with blood, and you didn't use blood in the ancient marriage ceremonies. But, but when God made covenants with his people, you think about Abraham. He, when he made the covenant with Abraham, he cut uh, birds and stuff in half, and, and God walked between uh, the dead animals. And that was that, that oftentimes in the ancient world, when you did that, you were saying, let what happened to these animals happen to me if I break the covenant. And usually it was the weak one, the Abrahams, that were supposed to walk through. But when God walks through in Genesis 15, it's God saying, because God can't die, right? It's God saying, I will never break this covenant. Because that symbolism is saying, let what happened to those animals happen to me if I break the covenant. The, the book of Exodus, the covenant is instituted with blood. So Hebrews says this, uh, verse 18 to 20, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and the sprinkling of the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So this is actually in Exodus 24. Moses uh, goes up onto the mountain with the 70 elders and they go part way up. And God says, 
When they get partway up, he says, stop and let Moses come the rest of the way, which, which is almost kind of the way the tabernacle worked, because you have all the people of God on the outside or in the outer courts. The priests could go partway in, but only the high priest could go all the way in. So you have all the people around the bottom of the mountain. You have the 70 elders halfway up the mountain, like almost going into the holy place. But you have only Moses going up into the into the highest place, into the very presence of God. And he gets the covenant. He gets all of the commands. And it says in Exodus 24, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the tribe uh, of Israel. And so you think about how. Now the, the mountain is at the the altar is at the bottom of the mountain and in the tabernacle it's the same way the the altar is outside of the holy place and the holy holies place uh, they, they've sort of the imagery is sort of taking the flat tabernacle and standing it up as if it was was a mountain if that makes sense when we go through Exodus I'll try to get some cool graphics for you or something anyways it says he sent the young men and the people of Israel who burnt who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings to the oxen of the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in a basin, and half the blood he threw against the altar. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, and this is their pledge of the covenant, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, they meant well, but what's the problem with that? Think through your biblical history. What happens? They don't do that. We sin. We continue to sin. Then it says, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant uh, that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That sounds kind of gross, right? Like, could you imagine if I took some blood and like sprinkled it uh, on you today? We'd have to go outside because we wouldn't want to like stain uh, the nice new chairs that we bought just uh, last year, and we'd, we'd probably all be like, okay, don't wear your Sunday best today. We're going to sprinkle you with some blood, and it might not come out in the laundry. Uh, I guess I guess you can be grateful, too, for communion, that we're, we're told to drink it and take it in and not, you know, sprinkle the grape juice or the wine on on everybody. Um, but this is this is symbolic, right, of blood and the need for purity and the cleansing. And, and you read, and you saw today, and we read in Exodus, all the stuff that Aaron had, all of those garments, it needed to be cleansed. They had to go through the whole tabernacle and sprinkle blood on everything. It was a symbol of purification so that God could dwell with his people because sacrifices have been made, because blood has covered uh, symbolically the guilt. It's, it's like a washing so these things can be ready to be used to, to minister to God. Well, what is that saying for us? Remember, these things in the Old Testament are, are symbolic. They're, they're pointing to something better. What is the better thing that it's pointing to? Do I need to go out and, and, and sprinkle some goat's blood on me? Like, people would look at us really weird if we did that in the church today, and rightly so. We need Christ's blood to cover us, to wash clean the sins that we have, to cleanse our conscience from sin so that Christ then in his resurrection state goes back into the presence of God as our high priest. And, and it even says he, he symbolically cleanses 
the tabernacle in heaven made of greater things. Now, it's not because heaven is unpure, but it's so that you and I who are unpure can go to heaven because we've been washed and the place has been prepared for us so that we can go into the presence of God because Christ, the Passover lamb, has been slain. Because Christ, the day of atonement lamb, has been slain. And one of the reasons that he can be our priest is because unlike the Old Testament high priest, he didn't have any sins of his own. And so he could pay for our sins. And this is why Luke says that Jesus said on the night of the Lord's Supper, this cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant is the new covenant in my blood. When you and I drink the, the, the fruit of the vine, and, and we use grapefruit, ju- or, uh, not grapefruit, grape juice, because it's close to wine, it's the same ingredients, it's just you haven't let it ferment. You take that as the symbol of what did Jesus have to do? The cup of God's wrath poured out onto Jesus on the cross. And Christ bled so that our sins are forgiven. And the only way for us to be part of the family of God, to be cleansed from our sins, is to have the blood of Christ cover us. And we don't do this physically. We do this when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came into the world to forgive sins. To forgive sinners. We are sinners. Let me just finish reading some of Hebrews here. Hebrews 9, 21 and 22. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifices than these. It couldn't just be the blood of goats and rams. It had to be the blood of one who is just like us in every respect in his humanity, but also without sin. Right? He's the Son of God eternal, but He's also the Son of Man who has human flesh and blood. And He sheds that blood for us so that heaven can be prepared for us. For Christ entered not into the holy places made with hands, meaning not tabernacles on earth, not temples on earth. He entered, which are the true, which are copies of the true thing, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God in our behalf. This is our last, and we'll conclude with this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Flip back to Hebrews chapter 8. And he's quoting Jeremiah 31. And I just want to read verses 10, 11, and 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Brothers and sisters, that's the promise that we have in the New Covenant. You can't see it in those verses, but if we went through a number of other Scripture places, the covenant promise there extends not only to the Jews, but also Gentiles. Anyone who is a person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and receives the forgiveness of sins is grafted in to this promise. Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Think of the lines in the song, It is well with my soul. My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. And then the chorus, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Two questions for you. Have you ever believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and you know that it is well with your soul? If you never have, we would invite you. Close your eyes, bow your head, and pray right now to Jesus Christ and ask him, forgive my sins. I see that you've died. I see that you offer the forgiveness of sins. Forgive me of my sins. Second question as we prepare for communion. Are you ready to take communion? The scriptures say that each one of us should examine our hearts before we take communion. Are there any sins that I need to confess? Are there things that I need to do to, to um, confess these things before the Lord to kind of uh, make sure that the bond of fellowship is strong? That I'm, not, that I'm not taking this lightly. That I'm not hiding sins and saying, oh, that's all right. I'm just taking the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you take this, remember what it symbolizes. Christ's blood has washed away sins. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day and we pray that as we partake of communion, that this would be precious in our heart as we think about these things, that it would be um, powerful as we see the symbols, as we see... Uh, the very thing that symbolizes the cup of the new covenant, the shed blood uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would meditate, that you would draw us closer to you, lift up our spirit uh, into heaven, as it were, where we see Christ and his majesty and his glory, and we marvel at it, and we just proclaim his death and the salvation that he's given us through taking these things in, we are reminded and strengthened of what it means to have faith in Christ and what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, washing our sins away one time for all time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.